feel like a special ops team putting on all this equipment before you go into battle. <laughs> Next time I come, I'll have to wear one of those helmets with goggles on it and who knows what else. Well, we're going back to the book of Revelation. You probably already knew that after last night. Before we start this morning, I just want to thank you all for your prayers. You don't know how much it means to our family. And uh, I'll just tell you, my wife, when I come here, she hasn't been here since, what year would that have been, Adel? When we lived in the Bay Area before we ever went out to Spain. That would have been back in the 80s. Yeah. We had two children back then. <laughs> now I have two grandchildren. We have seven children and two grandchildren. And uh, she tells me, whenever I'm headed this way, she says, okay, honey, enjoy it. Now you're going to the church that loves you. <laughs> she knows it. And uh, we just want you to know how much our family appreciates all of you and how we thank God for you. And I want to share one verse with you before we get right into the study today. It's in Revelation. Just what Jenny was talking about and, uh, and uh, her comment about the importance of one little prayer. Revelation chapter 6, no, chapter 5 and verse 8. It says, When he had taken the book, the four beasts and the Four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. These golden vials of fragrances, of incense, that's the prayers of the saints. That's how important our prayers are to God. I don't know how you feel when you pray, but a lot of times when I pray, I feel like I really need to learn another language that my, I don't really know how to express myself right to God. And I feel like my prayers are, even as an adult, like I felt when I was a little kid, my grandmother would tell me, now you pray, son. And I'd pray and thank you for the bees and the flowers. And the, I didn't know what to say. And I'd just kind of stumble along and pray anything that came into my mind. And even as an adult, sometimes I feel like my prayers are these stumbly, bumbly things that I wouldn't put them in a golden picture frame and hang them on the wall for everybody to see. I, they're just really pathetic sometimes. You feel like you, you want to express yourself to the Lord and you don't really know how to do it. And even the Holy Spirit it works with us when we pray. You know, the scripture says he makes intercession for us. He takes our prayers and he presents them to God even when we pray and we don't really know how to express ourselves. We might just groan or sigh in the middle of our prayers. And he knows how to translate all of that into the exact language that the Father needs to hear in heaven. I don't know what other people think about my prayers and your prayers, but I don't care what they think. And you should care like they do here in the book of Revelation about what God thinks. God takes your prayers and he calls them incense. And he puts them in golden bowls. That's how they're treated in heaven. That's how important your prayers are. Don't ever forget that. Whatever prayer of a saint might look like here on earth in heaven, it's incense in golden bowls. So fill up those bowls. Okay, let's go back to chapter 1. 
And we'll read again the first nine verses, uh, first eight verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of the things of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks this morning that we can come into your presence and call you Father because of this one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. We thank you for that great love that he showed for us when he went to Calvary. We thank you for your love for us in sending your son to die for sinners, for awful rebels like we were, and to change us, Lord, and to make us into sons in your kingdom, in your family. We thank you for putting us into your family as your own children, your own sons and daughters, not having us as trophies on the wall or or hired people to work cleaning the streets of heaven, but to put us right there as your own children, your own sons and daughters. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for the wonderful inheritance that we have reserved for us in heaven because of Jesus Christ. And we commit our time, our study to you this morning and pray that you will lead us by your Holy Spirit, guide our thoughts, touch our lives, and help us to live more for the honor and the glory of of the one who did everything for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, yesterday we began by saying that the book of Revelation is not a book about things. And I want to emphasize that again this morning. It's a book about a person. It's a book about the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ, when he is going to be revealed. And that's why we spent so much time on the first verse last night, because if you don't get the first verse right, you don't get the rest of the book right. Even though you might know a lot of things about the book, you don't really know how to fit them in. It's like having all the pieces of the puzzle, but not knowing how to put them all together to get the picture right. And so this is the important thing, to get these first few words even of the first verse Right, the revelation of Jesus Christ, God gave to him, and we looked at that last night. He's given to his son promises, and the prophetic scriptures in the Old Testament and even in the New tell us that one day the Son of God is going to be revealed and known by all creation. Now, before we go into the second blessing and work our way through the rest of them, and I hope it won't take us too long to do that, Some of them are not that hard to figure out. I want you to come back with me to the book of Genesis. And I want to give you two or three more verses just about the promises that God has made concerning the ruling 
the revealing and the ruling of his son. We, we skipped the first one last night. And the first one is way back in Genesis chapter 3. And this is a verse that worries Satan. I don't know if you know that. This, this verse worries him. And if you study the, the history uh, through the Old Testament and it went even into the New, when, in the birth of Christ and when Herod sent the soldiers to kill all the, the babies and the children, that's this verse in action. The times when the Jews, like in Esther's time and other times when the Jews have nearly been annihilated, all of those things have to do with this verse that worries the devil. And this verse is, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The seed of the woman, the descendant of the woman, and the seed of Satan, the serpent. That invisible war, that conflict, the Lord tells us right here in the third chapter of Genesis in verse 15. He tells us about the beginning of it. That there's enmity, there's, uh, and we say enemistad. It means these, these people or these two groups are naturally enemies from then on. They dislike each other. They war against each other. And this is the invisible war that takes place all through the Old Testament. Because the devil is worried. He knows that the seed, one of the descendants of the woman, is going to give him a fatal wound. The descendant of the woman is going to be bruised on the heel. Now, about four weeks ago, I don't know how I did it running or playing basketball with my boys or something. I bruised my uh, Achilles tendon on my right heel. Not too bad because I can still run, and I'm thankful for that. But it's, it's painful. But you can keep going. I couldn't say, okay, boys, I can't play with you anymore because they knew I could. You just have to limp around and be careful and not uh, do anything to make it worse. And uh, so that's a bruise on your heel. But when a person has a head injury, that's a different matter. And this is a fatal head injury. And that's what he's talking about. The difference between a wound that is not fatal and a wound that is and the devil's been worried about Genesis 3.15 ever since the Lord said that. That one of the descendants of the Lord, of the woman, of Eve, one of her descendants, somebody in the human race was going to enter who was going to be the one who was going to bruise Satan's head. He was going to receive his fatal wound. And so he's been watching all down through history and trying to figure out who it is and where they're coming from. And so Cain killed Abel. And so many things through history you can explain by going back to Genesis 3.15. And Haman told the king that the Jews were their enemy and that they should all be wiped out. And Pharaoh told uh, the midwives. I have to stop and think of the English word sometimes. I was going to say the comadronas. He told them to take all the male children they were born of the Hebrews and drowned them, killed them or drowned them. And Herod sent the armies 
And this is the way we go through history and we look and we see all of these different times and places where there has been an attempt on the seed of the woman. Because this is a promise that God has made and the devil knows that God keeps his promises. We all know who the seed of the woman is. Not any mystery to us, but it was a great mystery back in Genesis chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 10. And this is Hannah's prayer. There's a praying woman for you. She's praying while we read verse 8 also. It says, He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And Hannah knew this, didn't she? She's praying here, uh, thanking the Lord and rejoicing as the Lord has answered her prayer for a son. And she looks beyond this son that the Lord has given her and remembers the promises that God has made. He's going to judge the ends of the earth. He's going to have a king. He says he's going to to give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And that word anointed is the word we get our word Christ from. Because Christ, it comes from the Greek word. This is Hebrew in the Old Testament. The Greek equivalent is Christos. Christos means anointed. That's where we get that word. And the anointed was the way they spoke of the Messiah. So this is a messianic promise here. He will give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his Christ or his Messiah. And so when we say in in the book of Revelation that it is the book uh, or the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him, these promises begin back in Genesis and they are woven in this way all through the Old Testament. Promises about a coming king and a kingdom that was never going to end. And he's going to be revealed. He's going to judge the earth. He's going to thunder from the heavens. He's going to establish his king. He's going to rule over all the nations. When is that going to happen? And how is that going to happen? In the Old Testament, they saw through a glass darkly. They saw it with great difficulty. Just a few shady details here and there. And then they would have moments of great clarity where the Lord in the Psalms, like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, would speak and give them in a short space of time a lot of details about things that were going to happen. But no revelation like what we have in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. And these are just two more of the scriptures that show us, and you can go and find more of them, how all through the scripture God has promised since the beginning, since he had that conversation with Adam and Eve, and since he cursed the serpent there in the garden in Genesis 3. From that time on, there has been a promise of a coming king and ruler. And the book of Revelation really is the book that fits like a glove on a finger, isn't it, with the book of Genesis. 
Because in the book of Genesis, you have all of these problems beginning and the promises given. And when you come to the book of Revelation, it just fits right in. And all the things that were undone in the book of Genesis are fixed forever in the book of Revelation. All the trouble that was started and the serpent himself who began to cause all of those troubles is put away forever. And so you really can't understand uh, Revelation completely without knowing something about the book of Genesis. And you can't really get something, uh, a complete story out of the book of Genesis unless you go and read the book of Revelation. Bottom line, you've got to read the whole Bible because it all fits together. So if you haven't done that yet, and you know I say this near, nearly every time I come, if you haven't read the whole Bible yet, start reading it. Two chapters in the morning, two chapters in the evening. You can read through it from January to November, sometime in November, the 20-something. I've forgotten what it is now. You do the math and figure it out. But the important thing is to read it. Okay, last night we had the first blessing. And the first blessing is in chapter 1 and verse 3. And it's given to the obedient hearers. Obedient readers and hearers of the word. And we'll be reminded as we pass by this blessing and go on to the second one how important it is for us in our generation because we have been given more than any other generation. We have more resources at our hand. Last night when we were having supper together after the meeting, uh, we were talking, uh, they were showing me one of these little, um, what do you you call them? It's a, no, um, it's a telephone and a, 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 uh, how, a pocket PC and a telephone and all that together. And it had a Bible program on there. And I said, well, if I should have mentioned that too when I was talking about all the different kind of... Because you can carry the whole Bible in your pocket like that now. And so we have more resources than anybody has ever had in the history of time. And yet what do we do with it? Blessed is he that reads and they that hear and keep the things which are written therein. Every time we study the word... Find something to do with what God has told us. And there's the blessing. Okay, the second blessing. And for the second blessing, we have to go all the way over to chapter 14. And Some people have already done their homework. Maybe what I should do is just say, okay, the next blessing and have a person come up here and explain it instead of me explaining it. Now, this is the second time I should mention that he uses the word blessed. But if you go through the letters to the seven churches and you see the Lord makes promises to those who, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. There are implied blessings. They're not, it's not directly stated with the word blessed, but they're there in the letters to the churches. But we're just looking at the times where he uses the word blessed. And I'll just mention uh, this in passing, that when you study the Bible, one of the things to study is the repetition of words uh, or phrases that appear over and over. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear, for example. All the times it says that in the Bible, that's, that's one way of studying. And you find a whole lot of them in the parables of the kingdom back in Matthew chapter 13. And then you find them here in the churches, the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. But another thing, another way to study it is not just the repetition of words like blessed that we're looking at, but the repetition of the idea. Because there are times when, the, when there are blessings offered, but he wouldn't use the word blessed. But the idea is one of blessed. 
He that overcomes will sit with me on my Father's throne, he says, for example. What is that? That's a blessing. We didn't use the word blessing, but the, if you're looking at it from the perspective of the idea and not just the word, then you see it. There are certain times when he says blessing, there are seven of those. And in the English Bible, there are seven times that the Lord says, I am, in the book of Revelation. In, in the Greek Bible, or the Greek New Testament, and in the Spanish, there are only six. One of them is combined. There are two things, but he only says, I am, once. He says, I am this and the other. But in, in the English Bible, there are seven. Well, besides the seven blessings that are stated here, we have these others. And so when you want to see the blessings in their totality, you're going to have to go back and read all the letters to the churches, all seven of them, and see what the Lord offers to those who are faithful to him and who are overcomers. But now we're over in chapter 14. In verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. So the second blessing is to dead people. Go write that on and put that on a sign at the cemetery. Blessed are the dead. (laughs) Is it a blessing to die? Death is part of the curse, isn't it? You have to go back to Romans chapter 5. And what do you find out in Romans chapter 5? Where did death come from? Oh, well, you see the human body and aging and, and genetic structure and diet and the environment and, and microbes. and No, 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 no. Don't talk to me about cellular decay and all these kind of things. Where did it all come from? Sin entered the world. And death by sin. One man sinned, and by him death passed upon all men. Death came to all men. He brought sin into the world. He brought death into the world. Say, oh, but I thought in in another place it said that uh, Eve was deceived in the transgression. She was. She sinned first. But when Eve sinned, there was still one person, the progenitor of the race, who hadn't sinned. There there were two human beings on the earth. One had sinned and one hadn't. One was deceived and fell into sin. And the other one, with his eyes open and knowing what he was doing, followed. And when he did that, that sealed the, the fate, you could say, of the human race. There were no humans. There were only two of them. And when he did that, there were no humans that had not sinned. Humanity was completely within the grip, inside the grip of sin. And under the dominion of Satan at that point. That's where death came from. And death passed upon all men. The death bell, you read it in Genesis chapter 5. So and so he lived and he begat children and he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. And it just keeps going. Just like in our village, whenever someone dies, you have the bell that rings on the the bell tower at the cathedral, the Catholic church there in town. When they have a wedding, the bell sounds happy. Ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong. Weddings and uh, the days of the saints that they keep and stuff like this. But whenever somebody dies, the bell goes, dong, 
thong. And everybody knows when it starts ringing like that, someone has died. And you have that in Genesis chapter 5. And he died. Thong. And he died. Thong. And the cemeteries are full. And the undertakers. That's one of those lines of work I don't find particularly appealing. But I'll tell you what, they never run out of work. The depressions and the recessions never affect them. And the cemeteries are always growing. They always need more space. It's a sure thing. Except in the case of those of us who are going to hear his voice and go up alive to heaven. But death is going to pass upon all the rest of the earth. So how can we say, blessed are the dead? Well, there is a caveat here, isn't there? He says, blessed are the dead, finish reading, who die in the Lord. And there's another one. He says, uh, blessed are the dead, which die in the Lord from henceforth. It means from now on. So let's put this into perspective. First of all, he's talking about people who are believers. Because to die is no blessing. But a person who dies in the Lord does have a blessing. But here at this point in history, why does he say it now? Why didn't he say it before? We can say in in one sense it's always a blessing for a Christian to die. He's gone to be with the Lord. He's better off, like we said, to be with Christ, which is far better. And, And we cry when a Christian loved one, when a believer dies, we cry and we're sad because we miss their company. We should never be sad for them. Never be sad for them. Because if you could go up to heaven where they went and say, would they really miss you down there? Would you come back? No way, Jose. They're not coming back down here. To live in this world after having gone to heaven? The Lord left heaven to come down here and die for us. But nobody else is going to leave heaven and come back to this world. Blessed. He says, from now on are the dead who die in the Lord. Okay, to put that into perspective, in the book of Revelation, we just finished reading chapter 13, chapters 12 and 13. And what happened in chapter 12? This is great. I feel completely relaxed with you about this because I know you study the book of Revelation and you know a lot of these things. So you have this in the book of, in chapter 12, you have the, the appearance of the dragon fighting against the woman and the seed of the woman. And he, he sends this water out to, to try to drown her and to kill her in her seed. And the earth opens up and swallows up the water. God intervenes in this miraculous way to stop the woman and the seed of the woman from being destroyed. And we all know that's not talking about Mary. You can't be talking about Mary because, oops, if it is, he says here... Um, let, just let me find the verse... Down near the end of the chapter. Ah, yes. And the dragon, verse 17, is the last verse. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her seed. Oops. Oops. 
Now, if that was Mary, we just I just let them argue when they try to tell me that the woman here in chapter 12 is, is Mary. I just let them give me all that. And then I say, okay, and who are the rest of her children? Because it says here the rest of her children. It's not Mary. We all know that the nation of Israel brought the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. And you have that picture in the Old Testament in the, in the dream, don't you? When he dreamed and he saw Joseph's dream and he saw the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down. He's talking about the nation of Israel. That's the figure. And so he says here in this chapter, there is an awful war that has begun and the devil has come down to the earth and he is angry. Verse 17, he was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And he says in chapter 13, what he did, he found himself a man who kept the deal with him that he tried to make with the Lord on the mountain of temptation. All these kingdoms are mine. You bow down before me and worship me and I'll give them all to you. And he found somebody who took him up on that deal. And that becomes the beast. And then he found another man who became the false prophet who did miracles in the sight of the first one and who caused all men to worship the first one. And then this satanic trinity made up of the father, the devil, the son, the beast... And the false prophet, like the Holy Spirit, you have this satanic trinity governing the earth. And it says that it was given to them to make war with the saints, verse 7 of chapter 13. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given unto him over all the kindreds and tongues and nations. Now, you and I can relax when we read that for two reasons. First of all, we're not going to be here when that happens. And secondly, because any power that he has, it says here in verse 7, it was given unto him. He doesn't have any power. It was given to him. He's only got what they gave him. He doesn't have anything in his bank account except what God puts in there. So you got five cents, you can spend that. You got ten cents, you can spend that. You got a dollar, you can spend that. But he doesn't have anything that isn't given to him. It was given to him. So he was allowed to do this. And it says in verse 15, he had power to give life to the image of the beast and to the image of the, and the image of the beast should speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So this is the reign of terror, we can say, that's coming in the future on this planet. And in the context of all these things that are happening in chapter 12 and chapter 13, he says, from now on, blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. Now, that blessing is true for us as well in a secondary sense. It's always true when a person dies in the Lord. He has a blessing. He's with Christ, which is far better. And he'll rest from his labors. Heaven is a place of rest. And he says, and their works do follow them. There's going to be some eternal result for whatever has been done down here on this earth for the Lord. Nothing else, though. And that's why the old preachers used to teach us when we were young people to recite this when we were growing up. Only one life will soon be passed. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. Over and over and over, they told us this. And we learned to say it, and they engraved it, and that's what they wanted to do, into our memory, into our hearts and minds. And that's what we need to remember. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Everything else is going to burn up. All these people who are busy making a name for themselves and filling their life with comforts, and it's all about me and what I have and what I enjoy. All these people who are courting the popularity and the power of this world, all going to burn up. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. They will rest from their labors and their works do follow them. So these saints, at that terrible time in history, these who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ are going to have the blessing of passing on into heaven and not having to live through the rest of the tribulation. They die if they're killed because they're faithful to the Lord. Well, blessed are they. Don't feel sorry for them. They have a blessing from God. But now let's think about the application to us in this verse. If this is given to them to encourage them to be faithful for the Lord, even though they might have to give their lives, seal their testimony with their blood, if this is given to them, this blessing to encourage them, how much more important is it to us now to realize what did the Lord say? In fact, we have it. Back in the letters to the seven churches, he said, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. God is not unfaithful, and he never gives us permission to be unfaithful. God doesn't lie, and he doesn't give us ever permission to lie. And we could go on through all the things that we know of that are sin and say God doesn't do this and he doesn't give us permission to do it under any circumstance. He tells us to be faithful. And so what happens if you have to suffer for being faithful? Well, the ultimate in suffering for being faithful is to lose your life, to be a martyr. The word martyr comes from the word witness or, or to testify. And that's what it means. They seal their testimony, their testimony of their faithfulness, their belief in the Lord Jesus and their faithfulness to him cost them their lives. But they weren't willing to turn around and go back. Are we that way? Judah sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. What would you sell him for? A relationship, a job, a thing, a person. What would you sell him for? Is there something that would come along that would be worth so much to you that you'd be willing to put your Christianity to one side if that's what it took to have this person or this thing or whatever it was? Be faithful unto death, the Lord says. And I will give you the crown of life. I'll give you the crown of life, he says. Their works do follow them. They rest and their works do follow them. In heaven, we're going to see the results of how we live down here on this earth. 
It's not going to be all erased in some gray, fuzzy, out-of-focus thing in the distant past and nobody's ever going to remember anything about this life down here. That's not the way it's going to be. In heaven, we're going to see the results of how we live for the Lord. There's going to be crowns of life given the crowns. And we're not going to go into that now because that's for another visit. But the, the Lord is going to reward those who have been faithful to him. And we're talking here about rewards for service. We're not talking about salvation. They don't get the two confused. Because salvation is by grace through faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ, not of works. There's not one single thing that you can do to cause God or to motivate God to save you, to forgive you for your sins and to take you to heaven. Not one thing you can do. The only thing you can do is trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. That's it. There's nothing else you can do. But once a person has done that and they're in the family of God, and now we're not talking about salvation, we're talking about their service to the Lord. And it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. And a lot of people know Ephesians 2.8 and 9 about salvation, but they don't remember Ephesians 2.10. God has before ordained that we should walk in them. And when we get to heaven, he's going to deal with us in heaven. He's going to review our service, our walk, our works as Christians. Those of us who he has saved and taken to heaven, he's going to review there our service. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors And their works do follow them. Are you a working Christian? They use that phrase, you know, working mom. But what about a working Christian? Are you a working Christian or... Dot, dot, dot. Well, there's nothing we can do. We're all useless servants. I hear all of these things. It's true. We are useless. We are ineffective by ourselves. There's nothing we can do, but God has put his Holy Spirit in us. Let's not forget that part of the equation. That we have become the dwelling place of God. And I don't count on my power. If I counted on my power to serve the Lord, I wouldn't have anything. The only thing I've got, and I have to say it to the Lord every time before I preach, and I prayed it this morning. He says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified. First Peter 4.11, I got it engraved here. And I think about it every time I have an opportunity to preach or to teach the word of the Lord. To speak as the oracles of God. And to minister, not in the ability of human character or personality. Now, some people have naturally more charisma, or we say in Spanish, chispa. They have more spark than other people do. It's not talking about that. And a person who ministers in his, his or her own ability and makes people remember what he or she was able to do, to the extent that they do that, Christ is not in their ministry. It's got to be the power that God gives. 
It's got to be the power of the Lord. And it's got to draw people's mind and their attention focused on the things of the Lord and on the Lord himself. Are we working Christians? He says they're going to rest from their labors. Ah, 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 Not down here. Not down here. They'll start resting too soon. There's no retirement from the Christian life. And then no holidays from the Christian life. You might have a vacation from your work, and that's fine, and, and we need it, don't we? Somebody said the devil is the only one who never takes a vacation, and if you don't take one, you'll be like him. <laughs> well, there's probably a certain amount of truth in that. <laughs> but not talking about spiritual things. I don't ever need to take a vacation that takes me away from God's word. And takes me away from prayer. I don't need a vacation from that. I don't need to take a vacation or say, uh, well, there's an opportunity to witness, but I'm on my vacation right now. I'm off duty. I'm out of service right now. No, no. When you get to heaven, you rest from your labors. And he says, and their works do follow them. And so what's going to follow you? I ask myself that. When I get to heaven and my works followed me up there, it means the ones that were done for the Lord, I'm going to turn around and look and say, Okay, guys, come on out. Hello? Whoops. What happened? Because you don't have to have works to get to heaven. In fact, you can't get to heaven on the basis of works. It's impossible. But if you are a believer, I guarantee you that your service done for the Lord Jesus here on this earth is going to follow you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What are you going to take to heaven with you? What are you going to take to heaven with you? You'll take your knowledge of the scriptures. The word of God lives and abides forever. Everything's not going to be equal when we get to heaven. We're all going to have full cups like Mr. McDonald said, but some people are going to have bigger cups than others. Some, some people's glass will hold more than others. They're all going to be full. You mean to tell me that a person that spent all of their life studying the Scriptures, reading, they had a quiet time every day, they went to the Bible studies, they gave their time to that when other people were going to the movies and watching television and doing whatever. And they're going to, these two are going to get to heaven and they're going to be exactly equal. Well, if you're talking about salvation, yes, because we're saved by grace. But if you're talking about the condition in which they enter heaven, as far as their rewards for service in this life, all things are not equal. I'm sorry. And maybe that goes against the great American dream, but a lot of things in the Bible do that. Their works do follow them. So I asked myself, am I going to have this blessing? With the first blessing, I asked myself, am I attentive at reading and hearing the Word of God? And am I careful to do what the Word of God says? And when I read this second blessing, I say, am I willing to be faithful to the Lord unto death? Is there anything that I would sell Him for? Am I serving Him? 
And am I going to have something to follow me into heaven? Or am I going to be one of those people that it talks about in 1 Corinthians 3 who are saved as by fire? A cinder soul. Saved as by fire. Just burned and you get there and that's all you have. You're alive and you got the smell of fire on you. Everything else has been burned away. You made it but nothing else. That's the second blessing. And that ought to make us think. Come to the third one over in chapter 16. In verse 15. He who watches and keeps his garments. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Well, we, in other places in the New Testament, we have admonitions to be careful to keep ourselves unspotted from the world to keep our garments in that way. We have the admonition to be sober and to watch in 1 Peter 5, 8, because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he says, the Lord says here, I'm coming as a thief. It's an unexpected, sudden coming. And he said, blessed is he that watches, who's watching for his coming. You know what, the, what they used to do uh, in the times of the New Testament? If a soldier went to sleep on his watch, sometimes they would just take a sword or a spear and kill him. But sometimes the guard or the captain of the guard, whoever caught him, would just take the fire from the torch and put it onto his robes, his garments, and set him on fire. And he would wake up burning, his clothes burning. That'd be a rude awakening, wouldn't it? Very serious thing to go to sleep or to be distracted when you're supposed to be watching. You're supposed to be the one who's guarding. And he says here, blessed is he that watches. I tell you, a lot of Christians or so-called Christians in the world today have lost their discernment. To them, everything is okay. And their watchword is, oh, judge not that you be not judged. That's the only verse they've ever memorized from the Bible. (laughs) And I've even known unsaved people who tell me that, oh, but judge not that you be not judged. That's all they know. It makes me want to throw up sometimes. There are things we're not supposed to judge, but that's another study. We don't have time to go into that today. The things we're supposed to judge and things we're not supposed to judge. And and Brother Ron, he can teach about that. (laughs) i got to pass something on to somebody else. Watch, he says. Be careful. You have an adversary. He's looking to devour you. He can't take away your salvation, but he can ruin your life and your testimony. And that's what he wants to do. That's what he wants to do. He hates everyone who is a Christian because he hates Jesus Christ. He hates Jesus Christ because he's the seed of the woman. He's going to receive the fatal wound. He has received it at Calvary already, and he knows what's coming for him. The pit for a thousand years, and then the lake of fire, and he's gone. He knows what's coming. The trouble is he doesn't believe it. See, the devil doesn't lack information. He has an apostate heart. He doesn't believe it. 
There's no lack of information there. And there are people in churches today who don't have any lack of information. They've got a lot of head knowledge about stuff, but their lives are a mess because their hearts are not humble and obedient to the Lord. And I wonder why we bother calling those kind of people Christians. So he says, watch and keep your garments. James says, this is pure religion and true religion and undefiled. To visit the fatherless and the widows and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. But here, he says, keep your garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. It's not talking so much about uh, keeping yourself from being spotted by the world. It's talking about not having clothes. Like one of those horrible dreams where you, it's a nightmare. You wake up and you're walking or you're, you think you're awake and you're walking through a shopping center and you don't have all your clothes on you. What in the world? To walk naked and they see his shame. Yeah, because clothes were given to us back in the book of Genesis for the purpose of covering up the body. They weren't given to us to make a fashion statement. And Spurgeon said they asked him about styles and in clothing and all that. And he said London gets its styles, its fashions from Paris. And Paris gets theirs from hell. But if you talk like that today, that's the last time you get invited to speak. <laughs> you see, they want to make a, a fashion statement. They want to make a personal statement. They want to draw, draw attention to themselves. They want to cover up parts but reveal other parts. And so the hemlines and the necklines go up and down. And this is what they're doing. See, the, the clothing was given to us to cover our bodies. And they made their little, uh, with the fig leaves, I say they made their little mini skirts. You know, they just covered up the bare necessities. And then uh, God came along and he said, nope. And it says he made them tunics. When he made them clothing, the word was, it, it means like a long robe or a tunic. He didn't make them mini skirts. He made them this long thing to cover them up. They didn't go out uh, in gym shorts walking around the earth. You know what the police call those back in North Carolina when women go to shopping centers in gym shorts? You know what the police call them? Rape shorts. Because that's what they're doing, provoking people. You say, well, they shouldn't look. You say, well, if you don't have anything to sell, don't put it in the display window. So he says here, to keep his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. It's shameful. And we know over in the, later on in chapter 19, at the end of the chapter, that the saints are going to be clothed with righteousness, with their righteous deeds. Well, what would happen if I got to heaven and I didn't have any righteous deeds? Well, it's not talking about physical nakedness, but it's talking about the embarrassment of being there and not having anything when everyone else is rewarded for their righteous deeds and I don't have anything. And the devil cannot take away our salvation, but he can ruin our testimony. And he can take away our reward. He can deprive us of it. And cause us to sell everything that we could have in that sense, in the sense of reward in the future, to sell it for some little trinket, for 30 minutes of pleasure, or some little uh, thing or relationship down here that will completely ruin our entrance into heaven. We'll get in because we're saved by grace, but there won't be any reward. We'll be ashamed 
ashamed. There's a, a song we used to sing called By and By When I Look on His Face, Beautiful Face, Thorn-Shadowed Face. By and by when I look on his face, I'll wish I had given him more. More, so much more, more of my life than I ever gave before. By and by when I look on his face, I'll wish I had given him more. I don't want to be ashamed. It's not talking about physical nakedness. It's talking about being ashamed that I don't have any more to give the Lord or to show for my life that I live down here on this earth. So here's a blessing. Are you watching? Are you being careful? You got your eyes open? Anything that could take away that reward and that joy and that blessing in the future? Are there things, people or things down here in this life that could do that and ruin it for you? You need to have your eyes open. You have an adversary. He's trying to take all those happy things in the future away from you. He can't take away your salvation, but he'll take everything he can. The one who watches... The one who is vigilant is blessed. And the one who keeps his garments is blessed. So I ask myself, am I that person? And you should ask yourself the same. Blessing number four, we're going to have to hurry to get all seven of them. I'm going to just go through these last ones real quick. One of them is repeated anyway. Chapter 19 and verse 9. 19 and verse 9. He saith to me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. What is the marriage supper of the Lamb? Did you have it? In this chapter, you have two suppers. One is for the believers, and the other is for the buzzards. <laughs> yeah, two suppers. The marriage supper of the Lamb. That great scene of rejoicing with the Lord is finally united with His redeemed. And it's going to be wonderful rejoicing. And I know I have a lot of women put on my list of the people I'm going to ask the Lord to let them cook at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because they are great cooks. But then one sister told me one time, and I told her that I was trying to compliment her cooking. And she said, well, that's nice, brother, but I'm not cooking at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because the Bible says when we get to heaven, we're going to rest from our labors. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) So you have this, this wonderful time of rejoicing. And then you have the invitation that's given in verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of the heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Oh, this isn't the same as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here's what's on the menu. It's not low fat. (laughs) That you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, small and great. These are going to be the bodies, the dead bodies of the destroyed armies of this earth. So there's the two suppers. I'm invited to the first one. (laughs) Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And who is called to the marriage supper of the Lamb? That's exactly right. Those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the only ones who get on that list. 
Now over in the book of Matthew, chapter 22, we're not going to turn there because we don't have time, but there's a scene there. You go read it on your own. There's a scene there in the marriage supper where a guest is found to be in there not wearing the wedding garments, the wedding attire. In those times when they would make a feast, a wedding feast, a lot of times they would provide the garments, the, the clothing that the people would wear. You didn't go out and rent a tux or something like that. Or everybody have to go out and buy new clothes for the wedding. The person who would invite them to the feast would often provide the clothing for them to wear. So here's someone who got in and he's sitting there and they find him at the, sitting at the table with the other guests and he's not dressed like them. He doesn't have the wedding garments on. You go find out what happens. Blessed are those who are called. The ones who are called are called in this way. They're called by the gospel. The gospel is God's call to us. And if we respond to it by faith in Jesus Christ, then we're the ones who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to be there with the redeemed rejoicing on that day. But that's the only way to get an invitation. So I would ask myself, well, do I have Christian friends? Are my parents Christians? Are my girlfriends Christians? I'm speaking to you ladies, not to the men. (laughs) How many years have I been in the church? How many studies have I been to? How many activities? Did I sing in the choir? Now, I don't have any reason to suspect or think anything about anybody in the choir here, so don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying none of these things will save you. You cannot get an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb by doing any of those things. The only way you get an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb is to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. No church activity and no quantity of good Christian friends will ever get you there. Nothing. And you can be here the rest of your life and you can choose to have uh, fellowship or companionship with the people here at the chapel and not do a lot of things that are going on out there in the world around us and you still won't get into heaven if you don't have your faith put in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the only way to heaven is to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's the only way. So blessed are they that are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I'd ask myself, am I one? Chapter 20 and verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. This is the fifth blessing. It's given to the one who has part in the first resurrection. There are two resurrections, you know. You know all the unsaved, all the unbelievers are going to have a resurrection too. Tells about that way back in John chapter 5. We don't have time to go into that. Ron, put that on your list. (laughs) (laughs) Two resurrections. So the time is coming when the dead will hear, all that are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man, the voice of the Son of God, and they will come forth out of the tombs. All of them. Some will go to eternal reward. 
and others to eternal condemnation. Those are the two resurrections. Now, the first resurrection has different phases. We know the Lord is the first fruits. He was raised first. And we're not going to go into all of that right now. But all of those together of, of believers who are resurrected and go up into heaven to be with the Lord, that all composes the first resurrection. That's the resurrection of life. And then there's the resurrection of condemnation. Then there's the judgment day. Chapter 20 and verse 11 where he says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. How did they get there? Chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. They got there because they were taken out of the tombs. Wherever they've been buried, death and the grave and the sea gave up the dead that were in them. And they all stood before God. Yeah, like the night of the living dead. And there they are, all standing there before God to be judged. Because physical death is not the penalty for sin. When it says the soul that sinneth, it shall die. That doesn't mean just your body dies and it goes to the graveyard. It's not talking about that. That's only the down payment. Then comes the rest of it. Spiritual death, the second death, because you can die twice. And it's being excluded from the presence of God in a place of torment for all eternity. That's the second death. Blessed and holy is he that has part on the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. And I ask myself, am I one of those people? I'm going to come out of that tomb one day. If we did, those of us who die before the Lord comes, we're going to come out of that tomb one way or the other. It's either going to be to be with the Lord, to be blessed and to be with Him, or we're going to come out of it to stand before the Lord and be judged and, and have it explained to us in detail why we're going into eternal punishment in the lake of fire. And from that scene, everyone who goes into that awful place is going to agree with God that He's right and that that's where they should go, that that's what they deserve. And all of us who go to heaven, we're going to agree with God that he's right and that we have no reason to be in heaven. We don't deserve to be there except by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our reason for going there, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. So that's a blessing. And we come to the sixth blessing, chapter 22, verse 7. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. What does that sound like? Sounds like chapter 1, doesn't it? That first blessing we had. So the seven blessings, only one of them is repeated. It's doubled. It's at the beginning of the book, in the first chapter of the book, and it's at the end of the book, in the last chapter, to show us how important it is to God that we keep the sayings that are in this book, that we obey the exhortations, that we follow the instructions that are in this book. So I'll say what I said again last night. I'm not afraid of repeating it. Even as much as you might know about the seven thunders and the seven bowls and the seven cups or the seven trumpets and the seven seals and the two witnesses and the beast and the antichrist and the 666 and the destruction of Babylon and all of these things, I'll tell you what, even more important is to go through this book and to find out what God wants you to do, what he wants you to do. All the rest of it is important too. Obviously, it's all important because God gave it to us. He revealed it as his inspired word. Every single word of it is important and true. But for me, 
Since God has said, and of his seven blessings, he only repeated one of them, and he gave it twice in the seven blessings, he said, the one who does the things that are written in this book, then I want to make sure I know what they are and that I'm doing them. So remember that little exercise I gave you about the piece of paper and writing them down. I'm counting on you to do it. You're on your own. But here's the blessing at the beginning and the end of the book to those who read and hear and do the things that are in this book. Sometimes when you run into one of these prophecy experts that is showing off their knowledge about all the different things about prophecy and telling you about all the prophecy conferences they've been to and the prophecy books they read and this and that, and then you ask them, well, aside from all that, what is there for us to do in the book of Revelation? See if they know anything about what it tells us to do. Or if they're just a walking encyclopedia of information about the future. What does it tell us to do? Well, 1 John chapter 3 says, He who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he also is pure. If I have the hope of going to be with the Lord, I'm going to live a holy life. I'm going to be purifying myself. I'm going to be preparing myself. Just like a, a, a woman is going to be married, is preparing on that wedding day to make herself as beautiful as possible for that wedding. That's her appearance. That's her day. And that's the way we should be thinking about our going to appear to be with the Lord. That's our day. And we have that hope. We should live pure lives down here. And, and to do that, you read this book and it tells you things to do and it tells you things to watch out for and to be careful, traps not to fall into. The book is full of blessings and warnings and instructions for Christians. We have that old hymn we used to sing, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Not just knowing things about him, but trust and obey. Last blessing, 22, verse 14. Now, in the King James Version, it says, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter into the gates of the city. So, if that's what it means, then it's really three times he's given us the blessing for obeying, isn't it? But other versions, including the, the translation by Mr. Darby, who translated the Bible into French and German and English. Even his version says, blessed are they who wash their robes. I think the New American Standard says it that way, does it? Either that or the NIV. I don't have it with me. Yeah. Blessed are they that wash their robes that they may have right to eat of the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Remember that other hymn? We don't, we don't like to sing those hymns anymore. They like all the bebop and the contemporary music in the churches now. There is a fountain filled with blood Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. They don't like to sing stuff like that anymore. Talking about blood and stuff like that. I love it. 
Blessed are they that wash their robes. And in chapter 1 and verse 5, you have the detergent you're supposed to use. He washed us from our sins in his blood. So chapter 1, verse 5 goes with chapter 22 and verse 14. So what is he saying here, really? He's really saying, blessed are those who are really believers. Those whose robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Those whose sins are forgiven and gone forever. That's the blessing. And at the end of the book, he reminds us, it's a warning, isn't it? You can't have the blessings of the book of Revelation if your robes are dirty. Not going to be any dirty clothes in heaven. Everybody's going to enter there with the robes washed. And so we ask ourselves, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And then we remember also that we're told as Christians to keep ourselves, to keep our clothes. It doesn't mean this. It's talking about our person, our lives, unspotted from the world. And we're told that if we have sin and we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's cleansing even for the Christian, isn't there? We can be cleansed from the spots of sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And those who wash their garments, they have right to the tree of life. Yeah, that tree really exists. And to enter through the gates of the city. Those gates in that city really exist. And they're going to be with the Lord. And all the rest, it says, are going to be outside. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, the whoremongers, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and makes a lie. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that that heareth Say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. So God's offered it all to us in this book. And the book ends with that, doesn't it? With that invitation and then that prayer. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even though for a lot of people it's going to mean a lost eternity. People are going to be outside. Not everyone is going to get inside. I don't care what Robert Schuller and all the rest say. They're not all going to get in. Outside are going to be a lot of them in verse 15. But those who have washed their garments in the blood of the Lamb are going to be on the inside. And I want to ask myself, am I one of those people? Is the Lord Jesus Christ my only hope for heaven? Not some of it, not the main part of it, but my only hope for heaven. Well, there's the blessings. And you have to choose one of the two when you read the book of Revelation. You have to say, I'm either, at the end of the book, I'm either one of the people who's going to have the blessings of the book of Revelation or I'm going to get everything else that's in there. And that's not hard to choose, is it? Is there somebody here today that needs to choose? Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this time together in your word. We thank you that even though this book of Revelation is so full of judgments and the wrath of God, that it is a book also full of mercy and the love of God and hope for all of those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the blessings that you offer to us, and we pray that you will help us as we live our Christian lives to take those blessings and make them real 
And we ask your blessing on us as we go our separate ways now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.